just one more with Joanna and Daphne, a fitness and nutrition podcast for normal people who want to be more awesome. If you have trouble deciding between just one more cupcake and just one more kettlebell swing, this is the podcast for you. I'm Joanna Shaw-Flam. I'm an actor, a comedian, and a normal person, and Daphne is not here this week because I am talking to a special guest. Before we begin, remember to talk to your doctor or medical practitioner before starting any workout or nutrition plan. I said we had a special guest on the show today. Um, Lizzie Briasco, welcome to Just One More. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Uh, so, Lizzie, who are you and what do you do? <laughs> yeah, good question. Get asked this a lot, actually. Um, so, right now, I'm an eating disorder dietitian. Um, I just finished up being a temporary sports dietitian at Purdue University. But a little bit about me. I was a competitive runner. I was born and raised in England, if you couldn't tell. Um, moved to New York, ran up through college, um, did my dietetic internship, which is the only one in the country that focuses on eating disorders, worked at the Emily program back in Minnesota for about a year, then went back to England to get my master's in sports nutrition, and then got matched to a sports nutrition fellowship with Purdue, which, as I said, I just finished about three weeks ago, and now I'm working at the local eating disorder clinic in town. Congratulations on finishing. That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, so it seems to me like uh, you came to be doing what you do out of your career as a young athlete. Is that true? Sort of what, what's the story of your path to, to your career that you have now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so definitely became interested in nutrition and specifically sports nutrition in high school once I started competing at a higher level. Um, and one of my coaches had a very wrong view <laughs> of nutrition, let's <laughs> just say that. Um, so honestly, like I started doing some nutrition research on my own when I was in high school because I was just like, this cannot be right. She has to be wrong. And lo and behold, she was very wrong about basically everything. Um, and then once I got to college, I was like, oh my gosh, I could study this. Like this could be a career. Um, so that's what I did. And then, you know, running competitively, you're going to come across disordered eating and some eating disorders. Um, so I kind of went through my own bout. I had some friends and teammates who struggled. Um, and I took a counseling class that had like an eating disorder focus. And that's really where my initial interest came about, because when I first learned about eating disorders, I was terrified. <laughs> um, <laughs> We had one 45-minute lecture in the whole four years of my nutrition education about them, and it was basically just um, our professor standing at the front of the room, going through the different diagnoses, talking about people who were struggling with eating disorders as if they were animals in zoos, and I was just sitting there uh, as we were going through like the diagnostic criteria just one by one ticking off <laughs> the different characteristics like huh okay I think I have a problem just gonna shove that under the rug because um, <laughs> that can't I cannot deal with that right now um but yeah so that's where my initial interest came and then when after I did my dietetic internship that focused on EDs that basically solidified for me uh, this is the area where I want to work. This is where my passion lies. A lot of work needs to be done and I want to be part of this community. Um, and then kind of wanted to use my experience with that with athletes because I recognize there is a huge need uh, 
for education and raising awareness and just there's like this whole push to um kind of break mental health stigma and I'm a huge advocate of that so just kind of blending the two worlds together yeah it seems like you've done a lot of blending various parts of your experience um you know we've definitely talked to people on the show before who became uh you know expert who became registered dietitians because of their eating disorder experience or um you know became interested in uh exercise science because they were athletes and it seems like you've taken a lot of those threads and sort of over the course of your career brought them all together to be mm-hmm. a sports dietitian who specifically works on eating disorders in athletes. Mm-hmm. It's very, very interesting. I'm excited <laughs> to talk about it. <laughs> Thanks, so am I. <laughs> so when you were in high school and you had that feeling about the information you were getting from your coach and something in your intuition told you it was incorrect that the way you describe that is amazing to me because I think it's so hard as a young person to hear something an adult says and and have the feeling it might be wrong and trust that feeling in yourself uh, because you're just taught that adults are right. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I think especially with coaches, I mean coaches are so influential in the lives of athletes young and old. Mhm. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't an initial thing. It was it wasn't really until like my junior year of high school when I started to question. Mm-hmm. Um, and just for I don't want to I'm not going to go super into detail here, but just for some just for some background, that coach specifically was pretty abusive and manipulative. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of things going on. Sure. Um, but the nutrition piece, she basically read the back of this book, The Paleo Diet for Athletes. And this, this was like, let's see, back in 2006. Um, so this was a solid, like 13 years ago. She didn't even read the whole book, literally just the back of the book and maybe the first five pages. Um, and was like, all right, this is what you're doing. (laughs) You're going to run faster. Um, and me at the time, I was very invested in running. I loved running and I was very determined to be a very, very competitive runner. So I was like, okay, whatever I got to do, you know, just tell me and I'll do it. Um, but by the time I reached like 16, 17 years old, I had grown very, very weary. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah. I am sure. Um, so when, uh, when you were working with clients, um, what kinds of um, challenges are they facing when they come to you? Are you mostly working with athletes? Yeah, so when it's kind of changed over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. When I was at Purdue, it was all collegiate student athletes. Um, now I'm at an eating disorder clinic, so I'm dealing primarily with people of all ages, um, basically age 13 up to 65 who are dealing primarily with eating disorder issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, with eating disorder recovery, there's usually an activity slash movement side to it. And, you know, during the school year, when the college kids are back on campus, we see quite a few um, collegiate students who may or may not be doing sports. So it's a pretty good mix. But right now, most of the clients that I see are not student athletes specifically. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it seems almost inevitable that athletes, and especially young athletes, would be at risk for eating disorders. I mean, uh, I'm not an expert, but I, and I also was never particularly good at sports, but I, <laughs> but I um, danced fairly seriously as a young person, and I think any time you have young people who are doing things that involve the body at a competitive level, um, you're, you're talking about people at like a really vulnerable time in their lives putting a lot of focus on their bodies. Um, mm -hmm. Do you have any sense of how common eating disorders or disordered eating is among young athletes or athletes yeah. in general? Yes, for sure. Um, so disordered eating and eating disorders are definitely more prevalent among athletes than the general population, just like any other mental health issue, which I think a lot of people don't realize. I think a lot of people are like, oh, athletes have so much going for them. Like they're strong, they're fast, they're popular, they're fit, they have so many friends. They're not depressed. And in reality, it's like, no, they actually like have it a lot worse than people think. Um, and I think it's also important to clarify the difference between disordered eating and then a clinically diagnosable eating disorder. Sure, can you clarify that for us? Yeah. Um, so if <laughs> I think of eating behavior on a continuum, so we have the eating continuum and on one end we have totally typical quote unquote normal eating behaviors. And then on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, we have a clinically diagnosable eating disorder. And then like most of that space in between is this gray area of disordered eating. So uh, what I mean by that is basically eating behaviors that are not very normal or typical, but don't happen at a frequency or intensity that is severe enough to be classified as an actual eating disorder. So like emotional eating, if you eat like an extra piece of cake at dinner and you feel a little bad about it, um, if you're on vacation and you're planning on going to the all-you-can-eat buffet and just like demolishing it later, putting in an extra half an hour of cardio or something. So like small things that um, are compensatory in some way, but not to the point that it like negatively affects your day-to-day -day life or mental health. Mm -hmm. uh, well, that makes sense. Uh, <laughs> and we talk a lot on the podcast about that continuum and how most of us or many of us have sort of spent most of our lives floating in that middle mm -hmm. space. Mm -hmm. um, and figuring out how we can, like, claw our way towards the normal end. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so uh, what are some of the things that make athletes more at risk for eating disorders? Yeah. So there are quite a few things. Um, like, I think the, the main factors are definitely... Uh, personality type. A lot of athletes are perfectionistic, type A, very high achieving, high expectations of themselves and others. Um, not really huge fans of failure. <laughs> Don't really handle that one too great. Um, and then, you know, if you think about eating disorders themselves as a gun, so I like to use this gun analogy. Um, but it's a combination of genetics and your environment. So the loaded gun is your genetics. So we know that a lot of uh, predisposing factors to eating disorders lie in someone's genes. Mm -hmm. So loaded gun is the genetics, then your environment is the trigger, and the eating disorder itself is the bullet. So athletes kind of have 
while they have a lot of opportunities where a quote-unquote perfect storm could happen, um, where if they have the genetics that predispose them and the personality type that really kind of lean towards disordered tendencies and then they're in either a very stressful environment or an environment that encourages eating a certain way or fitting into a certain aesthetic body type wise um teammates coaches friends who really idolize a certain body ideal you can see where we're going with this mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, that really predisposes them. So, and I mean, just to give you an idea of how prevalent um, eating disorders are, there haven't there hasn't been a whole lot of research on it. One of the first studies that was done was by a Norwegian scientist, Norwegian scientist, um, by the name of Sangotborgen, and that was back in two thousand four. So not even oh wow, yeah, not even twenty years ago. Um, and that study basically showed that the prevalence of eating disorders and subclinical EDs are more prevalent in elite athletes than the general population. Um, they found about 14% of elite athletes met clinical and subclinical diagnoses. Then you have some more recent studies. Uh, for example, one in 2013 done on NCAA Division One student-athletes, subclinical ED rates ranged from 12 to 16% in male athletes and from 7 to 26% in female athletes. Once you get to uh, the adolescent age, like elite adolescent athletes, the number kind of skyrockets. Um, study that was done nine years ago, about 13% of males and approximately 48% of female elite adolescent athletes classified as subclinical eating disorders. Wow. So. Yeah, it's um, it definitely is more common than people would like to think. And I think the difficulty in uh, kind of passing it out is, well, what what do you classify as fueling for your performance versus disordered eating? Like, where is that line? Right, absolutely. I mean, it, it makes so much sense to me that in an environment in which you are rewarded or approved of for the ways you can control your life, um, Mm -hmm. whether it's in terms of, you know, the discipline of your practice or um, the discipline of your body, that that would so easily leak into eating disorder behavior um, and not get noticed because it's just another way that you are being good at what you're supposed to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely, there's so much overlap between um, symptoms that I've seen in my eating disorder clients and behaviors and attitudes that are really kind of encouraged in the sporting environment. And it's not a knock on sports. Like you, there is a certain level of compromise that you need to make when you're an athlete at that level. Mm-hmm. I think we could do a better job of instilling positive intentions behind those behaviors versus harmful intentions and coming at it from a more holistic standpoint um, and treating athletes like they're humans first because I think a lot of people tend to forget that. They usually put the athlete first and the medal first and the winning first. Mm -hmm. Um, But that, I mean, I've seen it happen with me and several other athletes and I mean I think a lot of professional athletes could say this too um that's not sustainable long term and like 
if you limit your identity only to you as an athlete and only to what you eat and only to your victories and your failures, that's that's really putting all your eggs in one basket. And then what happens when that identity is taken away? Sure. Either because you're injured or you stop performing or you just age out. I mean, yeah. I think with, you know, with so many sports, um, even if you're the best in the world, you're only going to compete at that level for a few years. Um, yeah. And then you can easily find yourself 25 or 30 uh, having to totally redefine your life. Um, mm-hmm. And then... Mm-hmm. Uh, if you haven't had that sort of more holistic uh, support as a young person, I imagine it would be totally devastating. Right, yeah. And it's difficult. Like, it's difficult to find that balance when you're a young athlete. Once you get to the collegiate and elite level, I think it's even more difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, Because at the collegiate level, so, for example, like, when I was going to college, someone told me, okay, so you have school, sport, sleep, and social life. That's four things. you got to pick two or three. you got to pick three, right? Mm -hmm. like oh that's silly and then I got to college and I was like oh god (laughs) I gotta pick three (laughs) this is really like it's difficult to to balance all of those and then you know once you get to the professional level not only do you have um like your your career riding on it but you have sponsorships funding social media a bunch of different pressures and then even when like different sports have different unique needs and pressures with them um and I honestly like after working with football for a year at the collegiate level um I feel like we really don't do our football players justice especially once they graduate or retire and especially professional NFL players um I think men in general it's easy for them to get left out of the conversation and you know keeping in mind that the whole eating disorder awareness campaign started in the 90s and was based as a feminist movement i like i really appreciate that um the modern ed field is really trying to create space for our guys mm-hmm. because there's just so like there's so much stigma around it to begin with right but then we get to men and mental health and it's just like another tier. <laughs> sure. And when you're talking about um, men's sports, especially I would guess football, um, we I think the like general like 1990s image of what an eating disorder was is like a very thin white woman. Right. And then once you start trying to warp that idea of what eating disorders are onto like a big football player, it, for, you know, for those of us who aren't in the field, it just doesn't compute, right? Like, that guy can't have an eating disorder because he's not a thin, rich, white woman. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, football is so much about your size and mm-hmm. and the makeup of your muscles to weight and, like, all that stuff. Um, now that you say that, it totally makes sense that there would be um, a lot of eating disorder challenges there too that would be easy for people to miss right yeah um and I mean just like I think when people think of eating disorders like you said the first thing they think of is like an an emaciated white female Mm -hmm. and you know in 
in actuality, binge eating disorder, since the DSM-5 came out six years ago, BED accounts for more cases than anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa combined. So I don't say that to minimize those ones at all, but more so just to raise awareness to make people think like, oh, eating disorders actually cannot, they look like more than just one thing. Mm-hmm. You, you, can't, uh, you can't predict if someone has an eating disorder or what kind of ED they are struggling with just based on their size or their body composition or their DEXA or anything like that. It's way more intricate and um, way more interwoven into the mental side of things. So, and I mean, that's true even in athletes, like in all the studies that have been done, the rates of OSFED or uh, bulimia nervosa type EDs have been more prevalent than anorexia nervosa type. So it's difficult. Like it's really, really difficult, right? Like how do you define compulsive overexercise versus, well, I just want to get in a few more reps. Right. I mean, anything athletes do to me yeah. seems like compulsive overexercise. <laughs> that is a valid statement. Jill. <laughs> well, so speaking of that, like uh, a general question that I have is like, is it possible to be a competitive athlete and maintain a healthy attitude about eating and exercise? Because, you know, I I don't want to, um, like you said before, like nothing against sport, but like, is there something against sport? Like, (laughs) can't, how, how do you, do you have thoughts on like, if it's possible to be in that world and, have a more holistic, healthy attitude about those things? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think that's what a lot of us in the field ask ourselves. Um, I know that's something that I've been like contemplating for the past two or three years. Um, And I mean, it's something that I'm frankly thinking about as, um, you know, I'm expecting a child and like, I'm going to need to make decisions at some point about activities. (laughs) Um, And like, you know, uh, we, my husband and I would sort of flippantly say, you know, around concussion issues, like no child of ours is ever going to play football, but like, you know, is it, is, is it responsible as a parent to let my kid play sports? Is it responsible to not have my kid play sports? Because they also talk about like all these great things you get from being involved in sports. Mm-hmm. First of all, congratulations. Thank on you. Pregnant. That's <laughs> Very excited for you. Yeah. So the basically the conclusion that I've come to is yes, it is possible for competitive athletes to maintain healthy attitudes towards their sport, eating and exercise. But it is very, very difficult, um, especially for younger athletes and the generations that we have coming into sports after us. I think a lot of it, I mean, I think a lot of the difficulties honestly come from social media. Like when you and I were kids and teenagers, that wasn't really a thing. Right. Um, now, like even athletes who are going through college right now uh, have a really difficult time like deciphering what is photoshopped, what's true, what's a realistic image that I see on Instagram, and then like what's what's not, what, what should I be looking for basically as Mm -hmm. like a reference point. And it's really difficult. Like we have so many skewed ideals of body image and also just like self-worth and everything. So it is difficult. I think it requires a lot of self-awareness, uh, willingness to question 
what you what you're being told and what what's being advertised to you on like a constant daily basis um and just a lot of introspection and understanding your intentions behind why you're doing what you're doing because I'm a huge advocate of sports like I'll always always encourage people to figure out what movement feels good for them um and trying a bunch of different things and I think that's the key like like you need to love what you're doing in order to make it to a high level um and I mean, I was told that as a kid, like once, once you stop loving your sport, that's an indicator that like you need to take some time away from it. And that's mm-hmm. what I did. Um, but that can be hard for a lot of people going back to what I said before, when, when you start it from a young age and it feels like your whole life revolves around it mm-hmm. and you're, you're not taught who you are outside of your sport, that's when issues can come up. So, yeah, it's possible. It's just really difficult, especially in the culture that we currently live in. It seems like it's something where, like, the, you know, the parents and the other adults in the situation ideally um, would be a voice for those things and say, you know, let's regularly check in. Do you still like this? How are you feeling about it? Do you want to be doing it as many days a week as you are? Um, (laughs) You know, do you you know, would you like to try something else? Because I think so often it's easy. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I, you just sort of like build up activities and all of a sudden you're doing like 10 different activities. (laughs) And unless someone stops and says like, Hey, you need to quit some activities Mm -hmm. or like, maybe you need to like cut down this list. Um, you just don't stop to think about it because you're a kid. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And it's like, well, I was told to do this thing, so I guess I'm just going to do this thing. Right. I've always played the piano. I guess I keep playing the piano. It's like, actually, you can stop. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yes, life will go on if you stop doing that thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, let's um, talk a little bit about some of the ways that you support clients um, in balancing athletic performance and holistic health um, I know that you also work with general populations, but specifically mm-hmm. looking at, at athletes, um, mm-hmm. what are some of the things that you work on together? Yeah, definitely. So I always like to, I mean, honestly, I don't know why this seems like such a um, radical concept, but it does to a lot of people. But I just treat my student athletes like they're human beings. <laughs> Weird. Uh, yeah, I know. So strange. <laughs> Um, so I, I'm not a huge believer in hierarchies. I don't like to think of myself as above anybody else. I'm a full believer in, I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm here to get on your level and understand what the struggle is. And then we're going to work through it together. So I like to come at it from more of like a mentorship slash, I don't know, really know what else you would like a guide, Mm -hmm. a guide perspective versus me coming in here and like, okay, this is what we're going to do. I don't care if you like it or not. This is what you got to do to be a good athlete. Um, I don't think that's very helpful (laughs) for everybody involved. So really just sitting down with them, understanding, um, understanding them as a person and also like helping them understand themselves as a person because they're getting yelled at every day like student athlete you're a student first and an athlete second um and I think like being a dietitian and being a different part of the support staff we're in a really good place to just remind them like yes you are a student and yes you are an athlete and 
And you're not a machine. You're also a human being who has feelings and emotions. And food is emotional. So now let's talk about that. So I definitely like to touch on intentions behind why we're doing what we're doing. So are we eating? Are we eating fruits and vegetables that you like for the taste, for the antioxidants, um, for the performance factor? Or are we eating a lot of fruits and veg that we're not really a huge fan of, but we feel like we need to eat so that we can control our weight? Mm. Um, So really touching on like, yes, food is fuel and it's also a lot more than fuel. And that's not a bad thing. Like you're allowed to like the food that you eat. And just because something tastes good to you, it doesn't mean you're a bad athlete or that you're indulging or that you're not disciplined. Like, I think a lot of athletes get in this mindset of like, okay, I got to hunker down back to the grind, got to eat stuff that I don't like and be on a set diet. Mm-hmm. Um, that being unhappy in some way is part of the training. Right. right. Yeah. And it's like, no, actually you can be happy and enjoy your life and be good at your sport. You'll actually probably find that being a happy athlete will make you a better athlete Mm. um and that's what I've seen with quite a few uh people that I've worked with so reminding them of that reminding them that you are more than a body you are more than an athlete there is more to life than your sport no matter what anyone else is yelling (laughs) at you um it's actually kind of important to understand who you are outside of your sport to understand who you are as more than a body um and that you know your eating patterns and your performance don't have to center around sacrifice so really uh replacing that mindset of what is food going to do to me to what can my food do for me i love that um it it makes me think too about um how I would guess that a lot of the people who you work with, especially like at the collegiate level, um, may never have been to therapy because just the majority of young people have never had that experience. Right. And um, it's, it must be so um, like you're coming at it because of these specific issues, but it really does. Once you start looking at the holistic um, aspects of a person, it may be for many of these young people the first time anyone has said to them, like, what do you think about your happiness? Like, what makes you happy? How, what do you really want? Like, what, how are you thinking about this? Um, (laughs) That, you know, we don't have another place in our culture that we interrogate those things as a young person, unless you're already in therapy for other reasons. Yeah, it's true. I can honestly say, like, at least, I'd say at least 60% of Um, the athletes that I saw I recommended they see sports psych because like they're not they're not taught like then they don't know what anxiety feels like to them they don't know how depression feels for them they don't know if they have a distorted body image because nobody talks about it Mm -hmm. so that's that's another thing um I really like I love talking about things that nobody else likes to talk about. <laughs> so so if someone says, you know, if we're going over Dexel or something and they gained a couple pounds and it's like and they <laughs> this is what they say. Well, I know I'm not supposed to be upset about it, but you know, and then it leads into a conversation. And then I stop them and say, well, wait a second, let, let's explore that. Why do you feel like you're not supposed to feel a certain type of way about it? Because I'm going to be honest, like if I were in your shoes, I would feel kind of like upset about it. 
like, I remember how it was when I was a runner, and I was taught that, like, weight gain is always a bad thing. So it's okay if you're feeling that. And honestly, Joe, like, the number of sighs of relief. <laughs> I'd like, oh, my God, you get it. Mm-hmm. You know, and just giving them that space, like, no, everything you're feeling is valid. There's not a right or a wrong way to think about this. Um, but if you think this is negative, let's explore that and talk about how in some cases it could be, but in a lot of cases it's really not. Um, so giving them like the validation and just like the emotional space to deal with that, but then also coming at it from a science-based, evidence-based clinical standpoint too, of like, hey, everything you're feeling is valid. You're not the only one who feels that way. Um, It's not wrong. And I also want to offer another perspective on this. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it can be difficult. You know, I've had athletes literally come into my office and say, so I'm just kind of confused because you're saying that I should be doing things to make me happy. But my coach just said, if I'm not doing something related to my sport or my schoolwork, I'm doing something wrong. Mm. No. And that makes me want to scream (laughs) because I don't think we're doing athletes justice by telling them that. Um, I think discipline is one thing. I think having your whole life revolve around unhelpful thoughts and behaviors is another thing. So, and you know, it's difficult when you have old school coaches who are like, well, back in my day, Mm -hmm. and it's like, well, that was a different day. Also, older generations also struggle with mental health. You guys just don't talk about it. Like it's always been there. Athletes have always struggled with this. The only difference is now someone is saying something about it. And I think it's a great thing. Like it needs to be talked about. It's stifling. Absolutely. Well, one thing I was thinking about in terms of, you know, the messages that athletes are getting from their coaches is that I think this sort of stuff um, sort of like trickles down from the professional level to the collegiate level, to the high school level, to the even like middle school level. And each time it trickles down, um, you tend to have less experienced adults in charge (laughs) and, um, less complete information that is making its way down. Um, But because everyone is trying to model themselves after the pros, then you get, you know, a high school coach who um, is doing what they think a coach does, which is, you know, walk the walk and um, be really aggressive and, and, um, you know, really expect sort of extreme dedication from their players or the people that they're coaching um, without necessarily having the information or experience that a professional coach might have and also dealing with an age group that has different concerns. Um, right. I mean, I definitely had coaches in a couple different sports in high school who looking back, I'm like, those people had no expertise <laughs> at all. No, like, we at all. easily could have hurt ourselves all the yeah. time. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, we got lucky, but, yeah. but yeah, that, that sort of trickle down, I think, um, is tricky. And then parents don't know how to judge whether they should trust a coach or not either because yeah. um, they don't want to be the parent who's a problem. Right. Um, and Well, some of them do. <laughs> it feels like they want to be problems. Sure, sure. Uh, but, um, you know, the, I think we're hearing more about it in the news in terms of sexual assault also is that, like, you know, mm-hmm. parents 
want to be involved and want to protect their kid and don't know sort of where to draw the line between their expertise as a parent and the, you know, so-called professionals who are um, on the support staff. Right. Yeah, Mm -hmm. definitely. Um, Well, speaking of that, um, can we talk warning signs? What are some things that either athletes themselves can look for or if they're younger, their parents should be on the lookout for in terms of, um, you know, warning signs of eating disorders or um, warning signs even of just like a... Uh, uh, the kind of environment you were talking about that where if you already have some of those predispositions, it might be um, a dangerous place for you to be. Yeah, I think it's definitely important to talk about those things. Um, first of all, though, like if if it's one thing that I could get across to people is that um, like there's a there's a huge amount of shame around eating disorders and disordered eating behaviors and a lot of people like a lot of athletes are scared that they're going to be identified or um like I feel like there's this pervasive feeling (laughs) there's like this love-hate attitude towards sports RDs especially at the collegiate level Mm -hmm. uh, where it's like oh no they're they're gonna know what's happening you know and something bad is gonna happen like I kind of thought the same thing when I was a student athlete Mm -hmm. um but meaning like if I go see the registered dietitian it mean that will make something be wrong with me as mm -hmm. long as I don't talk to an expert I'm okay yeah Mm -hmm. yes I think that's one train of thought. Um, The other thing that could happen is if someone doesn't really, like, isn't aware of eating disorders or what the symptoms are and they're, like, they feel very distressed all the time around food and they have no idea what's happening. So then they go to a dietitian or a sports psych and talk about it. And then they say, like, the support staff says, you know, I have you heard of eating disorder or have you heard of this condition it kind of sounds like this is what might be happening and then the athlete could feel a huge sense of relief because then they can say oh this isn't just me going crazy this is actually like a diagnosable thing um and it doesn't have to be this way like I can get support to change it so it can go either way uh but I think the former is definitely more prevalent so So if you do see any warning signs or if you are like trying to raise awareness about it, coming at it from a very neutral view, not being judgmental, really trying to not bring shame or shame the person in question, but really coming at it from more of a perspective of, um, you know, this is, we see this quite a lot in athletes. It's a pretty normal thing. Um, like it's important to be conscientious about how you're treating your body and how you're fueling, but you know, it it might, it seems like it might have reached a point where it's not being that helpful anymore. So what can we do to help you get back on track so that we're not hurting ourselves, putting ourselves at risk for injury, but so that we are taking care of our body. So I just want to get that out the way first, really trying to break the stigma. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Just so many people, So many more people struggle with it than they realize. So also for anybody listening, if you're like, oh, my God, this is me, like you're not alone. Many other people have struggled it or are currently struggling with it and just don't know how to verbalize it. But anyway, on to the signs. So, um, I mean, this could go for gen pop, but especially in athletes, uh, bone injuries are a big one, especially in male athletes. 
amenorrhea or missing a menstrual cycle for three or more months in females is also a pretty big one. Um, doing compulsive extra training outside of scheduled practices, talking about fat diets. If they have a history of dieting, you know, if their mom has had their, had them on a diet since they were a kid, um, exhibiting orthorexic tendencies. So orthorexia nervosa isn't a diagnosable eating disorder yet. I would expect that to change in the next decade, but um, just an obsession with healthy eating or needed to get, needing to get the maximal amount of nutrition benefits out of their food at all times. Negative body talk, body image, uh, comorbidities like depression, anxiety, OCD can also be a red flag. Um, let's see, physical symptoms. So brittle hair and nails, uh, like kind of sunken temporal lobes, which is like on, on the side of your head, kind of close to your eyes. Um, if they're feeling cold all the time, especially in warmer temperatures, if they have a really rapid weight loss or weight gain, um, if they're their affect changes. So if they're usually really outgoing and then all of a sudden they're isolating, if they become really irritable, um, if they get really defensive around their food choices, that could be a sign. And uh, the last thing that I would mention applies more so to older athletes, but I think more and more it's becoming an issue in high school athletes, but substance use. Mm -hmm. So whether it's alcohol or drugs, just being aware of that as well, I think that also doesn't get enough attention of the overlap between eating disorders and substance abuse, you know, and especially when um, kids go off to college, that's a huge transition. They're surrounded by a bunch of different personality types and different ages and different social situations. Um, and again, I feel like that's not really talked about, but it's super helpful if you just say like, you're surrounded by people who are over 21. We know it happens. We're not going to chastise you for it. Like, we just want to help. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, if you notice warning signs, and well, so here's a question. So I definitely had the experience in high school um, where I saw warning signs in people my age, in my peers. And I really didn't know what to do. I think it's, it's maybe different if you're a parent of someone who's under 18 and you have some sort of control over their lives. Um, but I think it's really hard as a peer and the older athletes get, the more it is their peers who see them. Um, right. If you notice the warning signs in someone around you, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> that is an excellent question. Um, and usually results in a lot of awkward awkward things happening. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it definitely depends on the situation. It can vary uh, based on who it is, how close you are with them, what your relationship with them is like, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, also depends on like who's available, you know, if are you at a college who has a sports dietitian and a sports psych or are you at like a smaller school where those services aren't available? Mm -hmm. um, and then how long have you known that person? So I think if it's someone who, like, if it's peer-to-peer -peer and they're very close friends and they feel comfortable just mentioning, like, um, don't focus on the behaviors so much, but more so on 
like the cognitions. So the changes in disposition, for example, you know, if you notice a peer who's usually happy and bubbly and then they've become kind of quiet, uh, they don't go out to team meals anymore, they're not really vocal in practice, um, like just shooting them a text, not making it a big deal, just reaching out, honestly, just reaching out and letting them know, hey, you know, I noticed you seemed kind of down the other day or really missed you at dinner the other night. Everything going okay? Um, do you want to talk about it? Something like that. I think that is like the, the, the best approach you can do. So not attacking them for anything, just letting them know, like, I noticed you're not doing so hot um, and I'm here if you want to talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually, like, if someone is kind of in a hole having someone else reach out to them is such a big thing. Like it's so helpful um, because usually when you're in that, that space, you feel like nobody cares, nobody's noticing. Um, and that like, you can just kind of keep on doing what you're doing and nobody's going to say anything. But if someone shows like, Hey, I care about you. Um, let's, let's meet up or just let me know if you're doing okay I think that would be the beneficial approach and then obviously like if it's getting really worse and they just like persist and persist like everything's great everything's perfect um that's also a red flag (laughs) if you ask how someone's doing and every time they say everything's perfect school's perfect running's perfect I'm perfect the sun is perfect the oceans are perfect (laughs) my hair is perfect, you know, it's like, well, all right, that's not true. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, like if that happens and there's a lot of resistance to kind of letting you in, then even just like if you are at an institution or a school, even if it's high school, just maybe giving a counselor a heads up um, of like, hey, I noticed Joey um, has kind of changed gotten more quiet or like he seems to be really focusing on uh going to the gym and eating only salads I don't know if there's something but um like if there's any way you could kind of suss out you know so getting getting a a professional professional involved when able would Mm -hmm. also be helpful um but yeah it can it can be an awkward conversation but the more you can approach it from a supportive neutral standpoint versus an attacking and accusatory standpoint the better yeah I think too um the way you described it as like focusing on sort of like what's going on with them emotionally instead of criticizing the behavior is something that um I never thought about you know when I was that high school kid wondering how or if I could address it with a friend. Um, Because the thing I always thought about saying is like, I noticed that you're really thin. And Mm -hmm. the reason I couldn't imagine having that conversation is A, because everything around us told us you should be really thin. (laughs) Right. Um, And B, that um, it was just so easy for me to picture how that conversation goes with like dismissing that concern. Because people are so good, we're all so good at um, justifying the reasons we do mm-hmm. the things that we do. Um, but, but I think it's, um, on that person to person level where you say, Hey, I like, I have noticed that you seem different. Um, if you want to talk, I'm here. Mm-hmm. Um, that's harder to dismiss, I think. Mm-hmm. 
and maybe opens that conversation in a different way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's super easy for people to get defensive about what they're eating, why they're eating, why they've lost weight, that kind of thing. Like the immediate reaction there will be defenses go up, you know, Mm -hmm. but if you reach out with warmth, then usually they will let their guard down a little bit and talk about it. Hopefully not always the case. Right. Mm hmm. Something else, I mean, I this is a little bit different because it's about generalized therapy instead of um, nutrition therapy. But when I was in college, uh, I ended up seeing a therapist at my college for a short time. And the way that I sort of um, tra- tried to do outreach around uh, mental health issues was just to say, like, I did this. Like, <laughs> I went to a therapist and it was great. Like, I am really glad I went it was very easy. Here's how I did it. Uh, everyone should know that this is a resource and that I did it. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, that worked for me and my particular personality and what I was talking about. Um, mm-hmm. But that is a way I think that we can, um, in terms of breaking down stigma, is that, like, if you have had an experience, um, you know, the more that we can talk about it um, in a way that feels comfortable and safe, of course, um, mm-hmm the more other people are like, well, I guess I could do that because so-and-so did that and they're still able to like do the stuff I want to do and they seem happy. (laughs) Yeah, I totally agree. Um, You know, I think um, like third-party storytelling is one of the most effective ways to engage with anyone but especially student athletes because it's really easy for us to just kind of think like nobody like this is a me problem nobody else struggles with this Mm -hmm. I'm broken because I have this thing going on like because if it was a thing we would talk about it right sure no (laughs) (laughs) wrong (laughs) it's definitely a thing which is why nobody talks about it um so yeah um I mean, I, like, I think boundaries need to be held with that, like you said, but I also believe in um, empathy and connecting and sharing stories if it'll help other people, you know, and if you're comfortable with doing that, which is kind of the, the, uh, the prime premise of my public Instagram page. It's called The Recovered Athlete. Um, and it basically, well, my, my aim with that is to help break the stigma around mental health in sports, specifically eating disorders, um, and just to get conversations going and also just let people know they're not alone. Like a lot of other people struggle with it too, but, um, it's, you don't have to break because of it. Great. Do you have other um, resources or places that you would send people um, that you think are um, great things to sort of add into your world on these issues? Yeah. So NIDA is a great source. It's the National Eating Disorders Association. They have a lot of information on there and they just recently added resources for athletes and coaches and parents of athletes. Mm. Um, So I definitely recommend checking out those resources. Uh, The NCAA has also had a really big push in the mental health arena and has um, even done some studies around athletes and disordered eating and eating disorder rates, which is on their website, ncaa.org. Um, other than that, like if you're at 
a university who has sports ideas and sports psych on deck, talk to them about it. Um, Cause I think it's, uh, it's definitely becoming more of a thing and trying to raise awareness. Um, and I mean, even back in the UK, like, they're starting to talk more about mental health and the number of professional athletes and former professional athletes who are coming forward with um, diagnoses of depression, anxiety, eating disorders, it's just increasing by the day. And not just back in the UK, like especially in, in the US, it's coming out too. So um, yeah, that, I hope that was enough. I, it, I yeah, that's great. And I'll, <laughs> link, I'll link to um, those websites in our show notes so that people can can get there easily. Um, and I'll link to your Instagram, of course, too. Um, is there anything else you want to make sure that we talk about um, before we go? Um, you know, not, not really. I guess, like, if you wanted to talk about some preventative measures, because I think coming yeah. at it from a proactive standpoint is always helpful. Absolutely. Let's talk preventative measures. I think it, it can often feel like there's nothing you can do, that you're so, yeah. we're sort of like standing <laughs> in the way of this like oncoming train. Um, right. So, so what are some preventative measures we can take? Yeah. So I think like first acknowledging, like if you work with athletes, you will probably encounter disordered eating and eating disorders. Um, so how to go about to kind of prevent disordered eating from uh, spiraling into an eating disorder? Kind of what I said before, athletes are humans first. Let's treat them like it. Um, get on their level and talk about what's bothering them. You know, if you if you see or hear some things that are concerning, don't just ignore it and say, oh, that's someone else's problem. If you have any contact whatsoever with the athlete, I think you have a duty to help protect and support that athlete. Um, coaches especially can help foster body gratitude and positive attitudes among athletes toward their bodies uh, and also towards their food, you know. Um, so just like coaches encourage athletes to listen to their bodies, to rest and recover appropriately, uh, both coaches and dietitians can encourage athletes to listen to and trust their bodies in the nutrition process. Um, it kind of goes back to what you touched on in the beginning of the episode. So many of us are taught that we can't trust our own bodies. Like we can't trust our hunger and fullness. We can't trust when we've had enough to eat. Um, and that's a load of baloney. <laughs> If we could just try and get back to that and incorporate that as some more mindful practices um, and just fostering, like, not being not being a bully to yourself, mm-hmm. just that in itself, I think, could go a long way. That's great. And that's something that you can do if you are involved with um, young people in any way, whether you're right. a parent or an aunt or you have cousins yeah. or you're a peer. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, just trying to, to talk more about those ways in which, um, you know, our bodies are good, good and helpful and, yeah. uh, that we can, um, listen to them and, uh, and listen to our own intuition. The more we can talk about that, I think the better. Right. Yeah. And the same with food, like how can this food help you and not demonizing or shaming certain foods, you know, cause that can, that can be a slippery slope, especially Absolutely. with young athletes. Yeah. Um, well, this is great. Um, if people want to find you or your work on the internet, where should they go? It sounds like your Instagram is a good place to look. Yeah, that's basically it. I'm really not, <laughs> I'm not a huge, uh, social media person. Um, so Instagram, the recovered athlete, 
Um, and that that's it. I do have a Twitter handle, but I haven't used it for about a year. I'm not big on the Twitter sphere. <laughs> well, we'll send people to Instagram. We'll have a link to that in our show notes as well. Um, well, Lizzie Briasco, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Joe. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to Just One More with Joanna and Daphne. Our show is hosted by Daphne Yang and me, Joanna Shawflam. We're produced and edited by me. Our theme music is by Hannah vs. The Many, who you can hear at hannahvsthemany.com. We'll be back next week. You can make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing to Just One More on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or whatever you use to listen to podcasts. For show notes, help subscribing, and to join us on Patreon, you can go to our website, justonemorepodcast.com. Let us know what you think. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at justonemorepod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash justonemorepodcast, or you can email us at info at justonemorepodcast.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. 